Hey there, welcome back to the Christopher Gabanata show. And uh, I saw there was something about Liz Cheney. Oh, no, no. New poll shows 61% of rebels cut Republicans don't believe Biden was legitimately elected. Whose fault is that, Fox? Yo, where? Just where the buckets were?
Oh yeah, are you still there? Oh, you are. Hi there, KAMP Student Radio at the University of Arizona in Tucson. KPYT, Pacquiao Tribal Radio. On the Razzle Trista Show. So I said, whose fault is it that 61% of Americans don't believe Biden was legitimately elected, although it was Trump who fought tooth and nail to steal those elections like he did in 2016? Months in advance, he was declaring that it was going to be rigged if he lost. And he and his postmaster that he put in place to help him steal the elections, they stole 300,000 mail-in ballots. Doesn't anybody else watch the news? A judge told them to do a sweep of 17 post stations in 14 swing states, but they didn't. They refused to comply. So Trump and his postmaster should be charged with 300,000 counts of felony mail theft. Hey, DOJ, hashtag DOJ, hashtag the Justice Department, do your freaking job. It's corporate media's fault that a majority of Republicans are brainwashed by Fox, OAN, Newsmax, and other rabid right-wing Nazi propaganda. Five corporations own all of our media, so it's no surprise that we cannot have political discussion in this country because half of us are getting what is basically agitprop. Russian agitprop. Hashtag Cambridge Analytica. Bombshells galore. I love it. If I was Trump, I would definitely start drinking now. Just so it shows you how gullible they are, this is what happens when you believe a con man. The Republicans seem to be overwhelmed and tired. Maybe they're not up to the task of governing or the Republicans prefer to call it rule over us. We need a party of doers, not a tired party of conspiracy theorists. Vote blue for the doers. Give the Republican Party a nice long holiday. They've earned an extended leave of absence. Bless their hearts. They know it's the truth. They want to be in the office. Definitely they know. They want to keep smearing things to see if they can go back... They can go back to being in control of the house. Shame. Bunch of douches. What a country must be so proud of the education system that creates so few critical thinkers. Yeah. Well, it wasn't created to make critical thinkers. It was created to make workers. Josh has to win. Fetterman has to win. Vote blew all the way down the ballot. I'm sorry, but I'm tired of caring about what Republicans believe Joe Biden won. Trump lost. If you don't like it too bad, get over it.
But... Okay, let's go to uh, Prosecutor Trump. I mean, Prosecutor Trump. Glenn Kirshner on bombshell signs of criminal investigation to Trump. Today we have former federal prosecutor and the host of Justice Matters, Glenn Kirshner. Thanks for coming back on. Uh, my pleasure, Brian. So you've spoken about this on your YouTube channel. Why do you believe that the DOJ is finally criminally investigating Trump? So I have an opinion on that. And, you know, opinions are like elbows. Everybody's got a couple and they're often no use to anybody else. But I'm going to take a stab at it. So first of all, I think DOJ has been doing a lot behind the scenes that we don't know about, which is ordinarily the way things should play out. DOJ doesn't run to the mic and announce what crimes it's investigating, 6, who their targets are. Um, oh however, you know, we've got the public hearings getting ready to kick off uh, June 9th. And I am as optimistic as I think I've been over the course of the past few years that this is going to be exactly what the American people need. And the reason I say that is because the chief investigative counsel for the January 6th select committee the gentleman named Tim Heafy, a friend and former colleague of mine, we worked the same major RICO case together in the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office. And I sat and I watched Tim give his opening statement in the most consequential RICO case we ever brought in the courts of Washington, D.C. And I got justice goosebumps. He is just that good at both criminally investigating a case and presenting a compelling message to the audience, whether it's a jury or the American people. He's assembled a team of former federal prosecutors, and that's why everything I see out of the J6 committee has the feel to me of a RICO investigation being conducted by prosecutors. So I am so optimistic. I am so looking forward to the public hearings kicking off. And now to more directly answer your question, it sure feels like all of a sudden we've had this avalanche of information tumbling into the public square about the Department of Justice criminally investigating Donald Trump. Most directly, we know that because Peter Navarro, important caveat, if he is to be credited, said he received the subpoena to appear before a criminal grand jury in D.C. And among other things, the subpoena directed him to provide all evidence 
of his communications with Donald Trump. We now know, assuming that's true, that the grand jury is investigating Donald Trump. Um, and, but we've also had other indications. They're going, you know, they're investigating Rudy Giuliani and Janet Ellis and John Eastman for the sort of Trump-involved fake elector scheme. So we know DOJ is now criminally investigating Trump and his associates. Why now? Well, I think because what we're going to begin to see on June 9 will, as Representative Raskin said, blow the roof off the House. And there will be, I'm convinced, a public clamor and outcry. Why isn't the Department of Justice criminally going after the, the people that we are now seeing? There is ample evidence committed crimes against our democracy, and DOJ apparently is doing nothing about it. That kind of pressure bursts pipes. And I, I'm not going to say DOJ is playing catch-up now. I do think they've kicked it into high gear going after the command structure of the insurrection, not just Donald Trump's foot soldiers that he said on the Capitol on January 6th. I think that may be one of the reasons all of this information is now tumbling into the public square. So I have a, a lot of questions on the J6 committee, but I want to stick with DOJ for a moment. What would the end result of a criminal investigation from the DOJ look like? Like, Explain it to me as someone with no, no law experience. What are the steps as this plays out, and, and could this at some point end up with Trump sitting in the courtroom? steps are they will begin to aggressively subpoena lots and lots of witnesses. The challenge for them is determining who's a witness and who's a target of the investigation. So Mark Meadows, it seems, based on the reporting by CNN about the nearly 3,000 texts, many of them pretty dramatically incriminating and implicating all three branches of government being complicit in the insurrection. You know, this is, this is mind-blowing stuff. The Department of Justice will have to decide who do we want to go at as a witness and who do we want to go at as a target. So when we determine, let's just say hypothetically Mark Meadows is a target of the investigation as part of Donald Trump's conspiracy, the, the Department of Justice will have to decide, well, is he so big a criminal fish that we want to prosecute him and we don't want to try to develop the information he has against or about the crime of others? Or is he somebody that we want to perhaps threaten with prosecution and, you know, get the information in what we call a proffer under a queen for a day letter, an immunity for a day letter, and then assess what we want to do with Mark Meadows. Um, so there are lots of tactical decisions that will go into the way DOJ will approach each and every individual. But what it will look like at the end of the day, Brian, I'm confident, is that there will be an indictment handed down under 18 United States Code Section 371. Shorthand, we call it a 371 conspiracy. That's a conspiracy to commit offenses against or defraud the United States of America. It's a very broad criminal statute. It's precisely one of the charges that was brought by Robert Mueller against the Russian Internet Research Agency for interfering in our free interactions, which is what Donald Trump and his 
criminal associates did as well. The reason I'm so confident that charge will be brought probably as the lead charge once we see the first big indictment handed down is because a federal judge in California, Judge David Carter, has already ruled that Donald Trump and John Eastman together committed the crime of defense against the United States or an attempt to defraud the United States and committed a second federal felony obstructing an official proceeding with certification of Joe Biden's win. And importantly, and I'll stop running my mouth here, the stream of consciousness, importantly, Judge Carter made his ruling after an evidentiary hearing in a case that was litigating whether John Eastman would have to give over some emails. And he made that ruling by a preponderance of the evidence, more likely than not. 51% of the evidence supported his conclusion that Donald Trump committed these crimes. And Brian, to indict somebody, you only need probable cause, far less than the 51% Judge Carter already found. So I am pretty confident, based even just on the public reporting, that is going to be the sort of lead charge in the big indictment once we see it. But isn't Judge Carter's uh, precedent only only binding insofar as somebody else, another judge, wants to support that that bind the bindingness of it? Like we we've seen so many judges kind of say that they respect precedent only to then, you know, not care once it's their turn to, to rule on something. Yeah, and I hope I don't sound like I'm contradicting myself, but Judge Carter's ruling is not precedent at all, binding or persuasive. There are different kinds of precedent. His is not precedent. His is a trial court conclusion after an evidentiary hearing. But here's why it's important. I would call it atmospheric precedent. Because he assessed evidence, and he decided that evidence met an evidentiary burden by a preponderance of the evidence. That is arguably more powerful than precedent. That's a ruling based on evidence. Precedent means an appellate court has announced some proposition of law um, that will now apply in other courts under the control of that appellate court. This, I would argue is more important than legal precedent because it's a factual finding. It doesn't bind people, but it informs people. Now, since this is a federal matter, if Trump ends up in a courtroom, is this the kind of thing that could ultimately be appealed to the Supreme Court? And, and, oh, absolutely. And, can, can and will be. And, and would any conflict of interest prevent something like that, given that he's appointed a third of, a third of the bench, although I strongly presume that the answer is no? Yeah, it depends on who you ask. I would say a conflict of interest should come into play if you have a Supreme Court justice who has a direct conflict. Now, let me hasten to add, you don't have a direct conflict just because a certain president appointed you. You do have a direct conflict if you're sitting as a Supreme Court justice and you're asking to decide issues regarding your wife's conduct, like whether her potentially incriminating texts should be released or hidden. Two, that's apples and oranges there. But of course, the Supreme Court has no code of ethics that binds them. So, you know, we're up to the goodwill of the Supreme Court justices to make that decision. But I would again hasten to add, Brian, I don't have a lot of um, confidence in the Supreme Court. They've showed themselves to be somewhat compromised. Their legitimacy is at an all-time low. They're about to take, it looks like, women's constitutional privacy rights uh, away from them, and that's probably just for openers. I believe they'll move on to contraception and gay marriage and perhaps other constitutional rights that they'll try to claw back from the American people. Here is the only arena in which I'm confident 
um, regarding the Supreme Court's actions, it's when it comes to issues of self-preservation. Remember, they did not try to corruptly throw the 2020 election to Donald Trump, and they had every opportunity to review cases that they could have used to accomplish that end. But they said, oh, heck no. Remember, there was also recent Supreme Court litigation or the opportunity for them to weigh in on whether the incriminating information should be released by the National Archives to the J6 Committee. And all but Clarence Thomas, who was conflicted, said, oh, heck no. What does that tell us? When it comes to the power of the Supreme Court and issues that could impact their power, like elevating the president to a dictator, they're not going to have it, not because they're good, ethical, moral jurists, but because it is their position and their power, because a Democrat has no need for a truly supreme Supreme Court. Now, is it possible that Trump could have issued himself a pocket pardon while he was still president and that that could come into effect if he's actually convicted of the crime? Brian, I'm not a betting man. My one dollar is my betting limit. I would bet a buck Donald Trump has a pocket pardon, as does Jared and Ivanka and Don Jr. and Rudy. Part of what informs that opinion is why would all of these people waltz into the J6 committee, all of them having various degrees of uh, self-incriminating information, and none of them pleaded the fifth because they have a pardon, I believe. That is bolstered by Kellyanne Conway. If her book is to be believed, if it's not alternative facts, she said Donald Trump ambled up to her at the end of his term and said, and I'm going to use his word, hey, honey, you want a pardon? This is what Kellyanne wrote in her book, and it's been reported by Ashley Parker from the Washington Post and others doing something of a book review. If he offered unsolicited a blanket pardon to Kellyanne Conway, who reported that she politely declined because she didn't think she committed any crimes. Do you really think he didn't give pardons to his kids and his close criminal associates? Of course he did. Donald Trump is never one to pass up a good grift. Now, do you think that that could come into effect uh, in the event that he's convicted of a crime? Yeah, once not only convicted, but charged. Once any of these people, if they have pocket pardons, is charged with a crime, indicted for a crime, they will pull out that pocket pardon and say, you, you can't you can't convict me, you can't charge me. And that is when the Department of Justice will have to take the principled position that we will challenge corruptly delivered pardons. Because there are these pardon purists out there who say, no, the president's pardon power is unconstrained because the Constitution doesn't put any constraints. That's pure nonsense. Um, there are constraints on every power announced or in embodied in the Constitution, you can always check the power for abuse. So if Donald Trump set up a pardon kiosk at the front door of the White House and was selling pardons for a million bucks a pop, the, the courts will not sanction that. They will strike it down as unconstitutional and against public policy, in my opinion. So I do think, and I hope, frankly, so we can set this issue to rest once and for all, corruptly delivered pardons get challenged in court. What would the crime be for Trump, and what could the punishment change from? I'm assuming being barred from running for office is among them.
Sure. It could be a seditious conspiracy. It could be yeah. inciting an insurrection. And if I, I have my big, ugly blue book of federal laws in the United States Code out of arm's reach, it's sitting right over there on my desk, I'm not going to run over and get it. Um, I believe okay, that inciting an insurrection does not include, as part of its authorized punishment, a ban from future public office, but I believe a seditious conspiracy does. But I have to check the code. Here's what I know, though, Brian. And we've already talked about conspiracy to commit offenses against and defraud the United States. That is a viable charge that should be brought. Um, in, uh, obstructing an official proceeding, that's a viable charge that should be brought. But I think treason is in play. Stick with me for a minute because I'm not being hyperbolic. When you read the U.S. Code, treason is defined as whoever owing allegiance to the United States, and Donald Trump does because he took an allegiance oath to the United States, whoever owing allegiance to the United States levies war against the United States is guilty of treason. What we know based on the publicly reported evidence, is that not only did Donald Trump, in a very literal sense, launch the attack, because he lied to everybody, he told them your vote was stolen, go down to the Capitol, fight like hell, or you won't have a country anymore. They obeyed his commands. In fact, the insurrectionists being tried for their crimes are using that as a defense. I was only doing what my president told me to do. That's not a legal defense. It may be what we call a mitigator. It may impact what kind of a sentence a judge hands down someday, but it's not a legal defense. He he incited and actually launched the attack, and then we know for more than three hours, people were streaming into the White House dining room where Donald Trump was watching the attack on TV rewinding to the good parts we don't have any evidence on what donald trump believed the good parts were i would assume it's when his angry mob was giving a really good beat down to the capitol police officers who were being overrun and everybody was going in there including ivanka imploring him to call off the attack and he refused and now what what do we know most recently one of mark meadows aides said and meadows comes out of a meeting and says donald trump one is angry that Mike Pence is being whisked to safety, and two, he said maybe Mike Pence should be hanged. Brian, I will take that case in front of a D.C. jury or any jury and make the argument that Donald Trump levied war against the United States. He waged war for at least three hours, and he should be held accountable for treason, and that comes with a ban from future office. Now that's a good time to transition to the upcoming January 6th hearings. Are there really any facts about January 6th that aren't known? Like, is there anyone who doesn't remember Trump peppering his supporters with the big lie on a daily basis or him tweeting uh, for the wild crowd to come or exploiting connections with far-right militia? Any jury and make the argument that Donald Trump levied war dining room where Donald Trump was watching the, the attack With because he lied to everybody. He told them your vote was stolen. Go down to the Capitol, fight like hell, or you won't have a country anymore. They obeyed his commands. In fact, the insurrectionists being tried for their crimes are using that as a defense. I was only doing what my president told me to do. That's not a legal defense. It may be what we call a mitigator. It may impact what kind of a sentence a judge hands down someday, but it's not a legal defense. He, he incited and actually launched the attack, and then we know for more than three hours, people were streaming 
into the White House dining room where Donald Trump was watching the attack on TV, rewinding to the good parts. We don't have any evidence on what Donald Trump believed the good parts were. I would assume it's when his angry mob was giving a really good beat down to the Capitol Police officers who were being overrun. And everybody was going in there, including Ivanka, imploring him to call off the attack, and he refused. And now what, what do we know most recently? One of Mark Meadows' aides said, and Meadows comes out of the meeting and says, Donald Trump, one, is angry that Mike Pence is being whisked to safety, and two, he said, maybe Mike Pence should be hanged. Brian, I will take that case in front of a D.C. jury or any jury and make the argument that Donald Trump levied war against the United States. He waged war for at least three hours. And he should be held accountable for treason, and that comes with a ban from future office. Now that's a good time to transition to the upcoming January 6th hearings. Are there really any facts about January 6th that aren't known? Like, is there anyone who doesn't remember Trump peppering his supporters with the big lie on a daily basis, or him tweeting uh, for the wild crowd to come, or his blatant connections with far-right militia groups, uh, or John Eastman's three easy step guide on how to do a coup? Like, what new information do you actually expect uh, to be uncovered here? And, and I imagine that's going to uh, play a pretty direct role in terms of people, what Americans more broadly take away from this. Yeah, uh, we know a lot, you know, in this day and age of instant reporting, you know, sometimes reporters are criticized as being little more than stenographers of current events. Not, I mean, a lot of research and analysis goes into it sometimes, but we know a lot. Um, and my guess is we know probably about 20% of what the J6 committee knows, courtesy of more than a thousand witnesses. Because yes, Benny Thompson and Liz Cheney and Representative Raskin, all members of the J6 Select Committee, have been sharing with us some details of what those thousand plus witnesses have said. And remember, they have probably millions of documents, evidentiary, uh, little, little pieces of evidence at this point that they're learning from. But we know maybe 20% of it. We're going to learn a whole lot more beginning on June 9. And I think Representative Raskin at his word that it will blow the roof off the house. Now, how would you consider these hearings to be a success? Like, what's the best case scenario for Thompson and Cheney and Raskin and Kinzinger and the rest of them when all is said and done? So I think success looks like a couple of things. One, it looks like legislation. Because that's really one of the primary purposes of the House Select Committee's investigation. They want to legislate to protect us against this ever happening again. Um, secondarily, uh, they are going to become convinced the number of criminal referrals based on the evidence that the investigative team has put together. And it is an adept investigative team. The reason I believe, Brian, these hearings are going to be unlike anything we've ever seen is because the investigative team consists of a whole bunch of former federal prosecutors who are experts in RICO prosecutions, gang prosecutions, white-collar pro prosecutions, and public corruption prosecutions. It's a powerful mix. And, and not only do they know how to investigate crime, they know how to present information to a jury. The jury, in this case, will be the American people. So that's what I think a success looks like. And I also think, look, pressure bursts pipes. And I think once we, the American people, see with our own eyes the evidence that they have amassed against Donald Trump and others for what they did to our democracy, DOJ will have no place to go but to indict them for their crimes. 
I want to move over to the Supreme Court for a moment. You know, we're seeing decisions being handed down one after the next on issues that really only appeal to like 30% of Americans. That are they're likely going to gut the Clean Air Act. We've got Roe. Do you think that the Supreme Court needs to be expanded? Oh, it does. Visit Sweetwater.com for the widest selection of music gear at the best prices. Experience our award-winning customer service and see how we make buying music gear online easy and hassle. It does. There's no question about it. For lots of reasons, um, notably the population of the country and the caseload of the federal courts have expanded dramatically. So what do we see? Well, around the country, we see uh, federal judges being added to the federal bench to keep up with the with the litigation caseload. It only makes sense to up the number of justices even before we get into ideology. Right? We have 13 federal jurisdictions, but we only have nine justices. Each justice is responsible for certain supervisory duties, lar often largely administrative, but supervisory duties over the different federal circuits. Some of them have to do double duty and take two federal circuits because we don't have enough justices to cover the 13 federal jurisdictions. Plus, look, Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump soiled the federal bench, right? They crammed ju judges down the throats of the American people that had been rated, not qualified by the American Bar Association. That's a travesty. You know, if you look back to the Obama administration, every time the ABA weighed in with respect to somebody that President Obama was considering nominating to the federal bench, if the ABA weighed in and said, Mr. President, they are not qualified, he never once nominated a not qualified candidate. That's the way America should work, divorced from politics or the ideology of any judicial nominee. You know, they soiled the federal bench so badly. And what we have now seen is a number of Supreme Court, a number of judges who aspired to be Supreme Court justices just flat out lied in their confirmation hearings. You know, virtually embracing the precedent of Roe v. Wade only to, you know, be so desperate to overturn it that the substance of their testimony was a lie. The question is, are we just going to let them all get away with that perjury, those false statements to Congress, or are we going to open a hearing into it and look into it? I suggest the latter is the appropriate course. Yeah, I, I think my, my biggest beef with this is at what point do we stop pretending that we have no other choice? Like, the number nine is not sacrosanct. We've had more than nine before. We've had fewer than nine before. I think it's just a matter of how much we're willing to take here. But we are watching kids get slaughtered and, you know, in, in their classrooms. And yet we know full well that if there was any Second Amendment challenges, the Supreme Court would strike them down. We're watching uh, women be stripped of their bodily autonomy. We know if a federal ban on abortion were to be put in front of the Supreme Court, that they would uphold it, that if the opposite was put in front of the Supreme Court, that if, uh, you know, um, protections for abortion, they would strike it down. So, you know, I guess the question is, are we really going to pretend that we're helpless here just because it's customary to have nine justices, six of whom are Federalist Society hacks, because, you know, because God forbid we, we saved countless lives and the planet, you know, because we wouldn't want to uh, upset long-standing tradition. I think that's my biggest beef with this, is that there is recourse, and, and we're, we're, so, we're so held back just by this idea that, like, the number nine is sacrosanct and that, that this is how it's always been. Even though the right is, is completely content to gut any, 
any tradition, any precedent that doesn't suit them, but we have to sit here and play by all of the rules that nobody else plays by. Yeah, nine is not a magical number, and Brian, I think you put your finger on an issue that I think can be applied across the board when it comes to norms, traditions, and... history we've had as many as 10 supreme court justices <laughs> and as few as five nine is not magic um so Thank i you. think we have to reevaluate norms traditions boy. and customs in our present day climate with as you say not only our children being slaughtered um, in mass shootings but our black brothers and sisters being slaughtered just trying to buy groceries we've got our you know Mass LGBTQ brothers and sisters in the Latinos, Pulse nightclub. We've got our Hispanic brothers and sisters just shopping at Walmart in El Paso. We've got our Jewish brothers and sisters at the Tree of Life synagogue. We've got Asian American uh, brothers and sisters worshiping who are being you know this is insanity. It's pure insanity. And you know if if I were president, I, I can't even utter that. If I got to sign executive orders, I would sign 100 executive orders in 100 days until my right hand fell off, then I'd learn how to sign them with my left hand. And I would attack, I would attack the proliferation and the unrestricted access to weapons of war in this country like nobody's business with executive orders. You have to be careful trying not to run afoul of the Constitution, but for gosh sakes, Donald Trump, one of his first executive orders was his hate-filled uh, uh, ban of human beings, yeah. Muslim ban. And the first one got struck down, but what happened? His nefarious administration went back, retooled, and got it right, or at least got it to pass constitutional muster the second time. Why can't we do the same thing in the gun arena to, to flood the zone with good, get out there and protect the American people with executive orders. Lord knows I put every restriction on high capacity magazines that I could think of and then I'd fight in court and I'd say we're trying to protect the lives of the American people. That's why we're we're signing these executive orders and let the legal challenge come because if we lose then we retool, we learn based on what the judge ruled and we get it right the next time. But shouldn't we at least, Brian, shouldn't we at least put ourselves in a position where mass murderers have to reload as they're murdering and slaughtering our children? Let's go after the high-capacity magazines at least. 
Let me just finish. I want to go back. And I, my blood pressure's up. I got to go back to norms and traditions because the other one that your question reminded me of is we have this quaint little Norman tradition that within 60 days of an election, the federal government, the Department of Justice, the FBI, tries not to take any overt law enforcement act that could interfere in the election or be perceived as being motivated by politics. Now, Jim Comey didn't follow that rule, as an aside, but that is a quaint little Norman tradition that we need to move away from. Why? We have insurrectionists in Congress running for re-election, you do not give them an election holiday from investigating their crimes. Indict them on the eve of the election if the evidence is sufficient to do so. Don't let the insurrectionists get another foothold by being re-elected because you've given them an election holiday based on a quaint little Norman tradition. Glenn, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much. Your insight is just beyond valuable, so I really appreciate you taking the time. My pleasure, Brian. Thanks. Come back another day. trying to end Trump org over fraud. Sinks herself with fatal misstep. Oh, that sounds good. I mean, why the fuck is she still in office, man? God. Who are the cowards that came? Michael yeah, Conn. Yeah, yeah, I already read. I already saw that. Town terrified after pro- two hours ago. Yeah. After prosecutors give him a So one folks, final he did it again. Ha Merrick ha. Garland yet ha ha. once more Yay. for seemingly like the one hundredth time in this whole saga has played a brilliant <laughs> trick on old Donnie and his entire team, and they don't know how to respond, talking about his team. Donald does know how to respond, and he's doing so by lashing out in insane rush anger towards everyone around him, his legal team in particular. I want to play you a couple clips, because it really sets the stage here. One, about how Trump himself made a big mistake. Like, he's 100% blaming his lawyers. But Merrick Garland just played a massive trick on him and scored big points in the process. But also how his lawyers screwed up at the same time. Nonetheless, you have all the proof you need that Garland's move has sliced and diced Trump in court because he has absolutely turned on his lawyers in anger. As a former federal prosecutor... What do you what do you see in the Maggie Haberman interview stacking it up with the evidence as we know it? You know, I see Donald Trump making admission after admission, um, all of which are statements by a party opponent, which is not hearsay. We introduce those kind of statements in criminal prosecutions all the time. And I will tell you, Lawrence, as an old 
career prosecutor, a trial guy, I see all of Donald Trump's admissions, like the ones to Maggie Haberman, um, as evidentiary gold. And I keep waiting to see when some prosecutor will be able to plant her feet in the well of a courtroom and argue to 12 people in the jury box sitting as the conscience of the community and begin presenting this evidence. But there is a prerequisite to us getting to that point. It's an indictment. And as Neil said, if he had, if I had top secret documents, I handled an espionage case as an army jag with a TSSCI clearance and I was scared to death. Death. I was going to say or do something that might inadvertently run afoul of the rules by which I had to abide. You know, we would be in jail. Lickety split. Um, so I await the Department of Justice to get to a point where it believes the time is right because this is only a timing issue. The evidence is there. Uh, Glenn Kirshner, uh, let me use your uh, federal prosecutor experience working with the FBI on search warrants and inventories of search warrants to get your reaction to the adjustment that they made uh, today in the new version of the inventory. Uh, they said that uh, Judge Cannon in the original order for a more detailed inventory, they only had one day to do it. Uh, this time they had a lot more time. And in their recount, the big change was uh, instead of, I believe, the total number in the first one was 48 empty folders marked classified, and now it's 46 empty folders marked classified. Uh, what is your reaction to that with your experience? I never tried an error-free case. I tried lots of murder cases, RICO cases, all in the courts of Washington, D.C., both federal and local. I never had an error-free investigation, and myself... I never tried a case without making a handful of mistakes, and I would own them when I made them. Um, so I am not at all surprised that with the number and nature of documents and, and the kind of search, the far-reaching search that's being conducted, there are a lot of hands that go in to processing a crime scene. There are often corrections made to what you know the, the officers, the agents, the detectives, believe they seized on the scene this is is par for the course because this you know it, it is a human endeavor our criminal justice system so you're going to have mistakes uh bradley moss uh with your experience in uh, as a defense counsel imagine yourself in the the, the trump lawyers uh meeting room tonight uh discussing what do we say on friday uh to the question of uh, what was the evidence that was planted by the FBI during the search? Sure. If I'm those lawyers at this point, assuming there isn't some evidence we just don't know about that hasn't somehow leaked out these salacious details, they're not going to be able to file anything showing that evidence was planted. What they're going to try to do is the same thing they've tried to do on the classification side. They're going to try to sort of pivot and kind of kick the can down the road a bit, saying, 
too, you know, to the extent that we have all the information at the moment, we don't have anything specific to provide the special master, but we reserve the right to supplement if additional information comes available that we can provide. So we're not ruling out that there will be something at a later time, but at the moment, we're not obligated to do anything other than say, here's what we do know, here's what we don't know yet. And to put it bluntly, you know, this special master has become a nightmare for Trump. And the icing on the cake is that Trump did it to himself. So as a lawyer, Lawrence, my first rule is always, like, be careful what I wish for. Be careful what I'm asking for on behalf of my client. Because Trump could have just peddled his absurd theories about the planted evidence, about declassifying in his mind, about how the Justice Department abuses his rights. But he instead insisted on saying all that and then asking for a special master. And now... That special master and the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, our nation's second highest court, has blown past all of these Trump defenses. Former President Trump's home, I'm told he's basically been sidelined from dealing with the documents investigation and is not actually leading the legal team's efforts when it comes to this investigation. Now, I am told he does still remain on the legal team. He may be working on some of the other investigations that Trump is dealing with. John, we know there's several of those, including the ones dealing with the civil lawsuit in New York, looking into Trump's business practices, the January 6th investigation that's based out of Washington, D.C., a lot of investigations that he could potentially work on, but it's notable that he's not leading the efforts when it comes to the Mar-a-Lago documents investigation. Part of that reason is because he was hired with a $3 million price tag. That precisely explains why he is no longer going to be really mainly dealing with that. But it is notable given, John, that's precisely what he was brought on to deal with with his experience in Florida law, but now has been effectively sidelined from the Mar-a-Lago documents investigation. So listen, you see that right there. You know, Trump's in big trouble based on what he's been saying in some new books, but this is all part of Garland's strategy. In and out of court. In court, he gets the specifics. He sticks to the facts. He hammers them home. And he dares Trump and he dares his dumb, dumb lawyers to go at him. And when they don't, he wins. And when they do, they get tricked into revealing far more than they ever wanted. And that's the same move in public. He gets Trump out of court by simply standing back and letting Trump be the main character. Garland isn't a main character. Like, there are some prosecutors out there there are some, you know, figures out there that make themselves the star when they go after the bad guy. And maybe there's a time and place for that. But Garland is the exact opposite. And the way he tricks and fools Trump and his team is by letting them go on OAN, Newsmax, Fox, whatever, just social media, and absolutely getting themselves in trouble. But that last clip really shows it, folks. The new guy Trump hired specifically to run some of these cases, I believe according to Midas Touch and other sources, that he was the one running that 11th Circuit Appeal Court, you know, that court case, that courtroom case against, you know, the, 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 the Garland and the DOJ, where they were trying to, you know, assert their right to keep these documents away from the DOJ and have the special master look at the classified documents, and they lost that. Trump is already, like, soft eliminating the guy he paid $3 million for. Now, apparently, he's still working for Trump, as that clip notes, but he's not even working on the case he was hired to work on. Like, Donald Trump is already flipping on his own lawyers and throwing them in the trash bin after paying them $3 million because Garland just defeated him in world record speed, and Donald Trump is putting all the blame on him. Garland's tricks in court aren't only putting Trump closer to prison, they're tearing his team apart. 
I'm no eco-warrior, but I just made us three delicious Morningstar Farm spicy black bean burgers. Saving gallons of water for the planet. Still counts. Last-ditch Republican midterm stunt goes down in flames. Nice. That sounds great. Is this some more Largo? Today we're going to talk about the GOP's last-ditch effort to turn our attention away from abortion before the midterms, and I interview former federal prosecutor Glenn Kirshner about the $250 million lawsuit against Trump from the New York Attorney General, his failed gamble with the special master, and even what punishments Ron DeSantis could face in his migrant stunt. I'm Brian Tyler Cohen, and you're watching No Lie. So things are getting desperate on the right. It seems like every other day is a Hail Mary. We've seen Ron DeSantis ship migrants to Marcus Vineyard to try to turn the national conversation toward immigration, uh, and instead he landed himself in the middle of a bunch of investigations and lawsuits even. Uh, he's taking heat also from a key voting bloc, Latinos. One South Florida radio host compared DeSantis' actions to Fidel Castro, the former Cuban dictator who relocated Cubans in the 60s. Okay, the move by, this is... Uh, the move by DeSantis dominated the radio and television airwaves in South Florida, where large swabs, swathes, I spelled swathes wrong, there's an E in there, of Hispanic voters made. One Spanish radio host loudly denounced the move and even compared DeSantis' actions to the deceased Cuban dictator Fidel Castro, who relocated Cubans in the early 60s. That's the whole thing. Uh, we also watched as Kevin McCarthy and the GOP introduced their Commitment to America platform, which is important, I guess, because Republicans are so unwilling to actually do anything that when they actually come up with a platform, it's somehow news. Like, it's news that one of the two major parties might actually stand for something that's not blindly following whatever words fall out of Donald Trump's face that day, although they'll still continue to do that. Uh, that rollout was just a bunch of platitudes about, you know, creating a strong economy and safe streets and a free future and an accountable government. I mean, really, really groundbreaking stuff. A strong economy, as opposed to the Democrats who, as we all know, are now running in this midterm cycle on a we-would-like-a-weak-economy platform. We've even watched them lean into abortion to try to retake the narrative that way, which is the funniest strategy to me. Like, you've got Lindsey Graham, who's so high on his own supply, so insulated by these far-right theocrats that he's surrounded by, that he's like, everyone I've spoken to wants this nationwide abortion ban, so let's lean into it. Let's not run away from who we are. And every other Republican's like, what the fuck are you doing? We're not supposed to say the things that we're going to do. And so now Republicans are simultaneously trying to divert attention away from abortion while also contending with people like Lindsey Graham who keep saying the quiet part out loud and advocating for exactly the thing that they're trying to hide. But at the end of the day, that's our answer right there. The old Dan Pfeiffer yes, adage. We need to focus on issues that unite our party or divide the other party. The issue of abortion... Majority of people want, wanted keep that like three quarters so they're shooting themselves in the foot hopefully and it should be a blue wave it should be a blue tsunami it should i mean it shouldn't even be close right now it shouldn't even be close but we have a right-wing rabid nazi propaganda in the form of fox and all the and oan and newsmax and they're brainwashing everybody they're indoctrinating they're radicalizing them 
portion unites the entire left and very, very clearly divides Republicans. And I'm not just talking about their strategy in terms of uh, in terms of how to deal with it between hiding it and embracing it. I'm talking about their actual support for reproductive rights. You've got half of the GOP who wants full-blown Handmaid's Tale, no abortions, no exceptions, and then you've got the other half that's no, maybe recognizing the cognitive dissonance between being the party of small government and also the party wants to dictate what a woman can or can't do with her own body. Like, Kansas is proof of that. The anti-choice faction got crushed 60 to 40 in a reliably red state. The five special elections since Dobbs have seen an average nine-point swing to the left compared to Biden's 2020 numbers. There is a problem on the right when it comes to abortion. The election results show that, the polls show that, and these Republican officials flailing to desperately change the subject are proof of that. Like, honestly, they're doing our jobs for us. By looking at the right's desperation to talk about anything but abortion, they are telling us that what we should be talking about is abortion. So look, they can try to rewrite the narrative with gimmicks like their, uh, their commitment to America platform, and by showing us just how inhumane they can be with migrants like Ron DeSantis did down in Florida, but the fact is that we already know what their platform is because they've shown us. Their agenda is banning abortion nationwide. It's eliminating Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security. It's banning books. It's punishing teachers. It's throwing doctors in prison. It's pretending climate change doesn't exist. It's coddling fossil fuel companies. It's giving tax breaks to millionaires and billionaires. It's making sure guns flood the streets without any safety precautions. And it's refusing to accept any election results where they don't win. That's their agenda. And we know that because they've shown us. Do not listen to what they say. Watch what they do. So if that's what you're looking for, vote for Republicans. But if you want a party that's made sure that you can get free COVID vaccines, uh, if you want a party with, that has upgraded our nation's infrastructure, if you want a party that's passed the first gun safety package in decades, a party that's funded the biggest climate investment in history, if you want a party that's finally allowed the government to negotiate lower drug prices, uh, made the rich pay their fair share, forgave student loan debt for 43 million borrowers, added 10 million jobs, brought the unemployment rate down to a 50-year low, strengthened NATO, stood up to the world's dictators and autocrats, if you want those things, if those are your priorities, then support the party that's Make sure all of those things are a reality. One quick note, the January 6th committee is back for another round of hearings. I'll be live streaming the first one on September 28th. Uh, so if you want to watch along with me, just go to the pin video on my YouTube channel and hit notify me to get alerted as soon as I go live. And finally, here's a clip from my interview with former federal prosecutor Glenn Kirshner. This is ostensibly an open and shut case. Like, we know Trump inflated his asset values to drive benefits on loans, and we know he deflated those values uh, to lower his tax burden. Is there any potential defense for Trump here? Like, is there anything that he could hinge his hopes on? No, this is not a triable case. You know, the Trump, or, uh, Trump has already tried to settle, and reportedly Attorney General Tish James said, no, we're not going to settle. You, you know, the only settlement offer that I would accept yeah. if I were sort of on the prosecution side or on the attorney 